no matter how bleak a picture Samuel painted, the people refused to heed his warning. They doubled down by reissuing their insistence that Samuel appoint a king like all the other nations. When Samuel repeated what they said to God, God told Samuel to go ahead and comply with what amounted to a death wish. The monarchy was on its way. The Bible is full of stories that we all know and love. But how well do we know them? The answer might surprise you. The Bible you thought you knew is going to dive deep into the exquisite details of the biblical stories that make them fascinating and transforming. When thinking about Israel as depicted in the Old Testament, or Jesus' Bible as I have been calling it, kings come readily to mind. Everyone knows that Israel had kings. Indeed, one of the books of the Old Testament is called Kings, consisting of First and Second Kings. Though Israel had many kings, two are truly famous, David and Solomon. David is well known for fighting Goliath, for his infamous affair with Bathsheba, and for his association with Psalms. Solomon is acclaimed for his vaunted wisdom, which allowed him to settle a dispute between two mothers claiming the same baby as their own, for his building the Jerusalem temple, for entertaining the Queen of Sheba, for having a harem numbering almost a thousand women, and finally, for his connection with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. At least in the popular imagination, David and Solomon epitomized kingship in Israel. But they were both preceded by Saul, Israel's first king. In this podcast, we will deal with the question, what were the circumstances that led to kingship in Israel in the first place? For they did not start out with a monarchy. As we attempt to answer this question, not only will we pay attention to textual details, as we always do, but we will include in our discussion intertextuality. Now, I am quite aware that this is not a familiar word, but it is a rather simple concept. Intertextuality involves approaching the biblical text in a holistic manner. Though the biblical material was written by many people, at differing times, for various audiences, in diverse locations, and for a variety of reasons, all this material had been gathered and put together, eventually, as a coherent whole. That is why a text from one part of the Bible may be related to another text in a different part of the Bible. That, in sum, is what intertextuality entails. I will illustrate this as we go. For now, I encourage you to read, and of course record your own observations, 1 Samuel chapter 8. But before we get to 1 Samuel chapter 8, there are at least two other texts to consider. That's part of the intertextuality we're trying to illustrate today. In the ancestral stories in Genesis, God said that kings would be part of the future. Once, when speaking to Abraham, God said that kings would come forth from you. That's in chapter 17, verse 6. Ten verses later, God said that about Sarah, too. 
Sarah, of course, was Abraham's wife. That's in verse 16. Then, when God was changing Jacob's name to Israel, now keep in mind that Jacob slash Israel was Abraham and Sarah's grandson, the deity also told him that kings shall come forth from you. That's in chapter 35, verse 11. So Israel's having kings when they become a great people was not an aberration. Another text deserves our attention. This is because, though kings were in Israel's future, the kind of king they were to have could not be left to chance. As God's elect people, even royalty had certain standards that had to be met. Kings, after all, wield power, have authority to tax, lead armies, are supposed to ensure justice, and the like. If such things were not handled properly, a king might have a disastrous impact on the public domain. This is especially true given the kind of community God had called Israel to be. Thus, it is hardly surprising that when Moses speaks to Israel just before they cross the Jordan River to enter the Promised Land, among the things he covered was kingship. What Moses said about this is found in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. You see what I mean about intertextuality. It is impossible to talk about kings without bringing into the discussion these texts from Genesis and Deuteronomy. When Moses addressed monarchy, he anticipated a time when Israel would notice that other nations had kings while they did not. That's in verse 14. That might prompt them to desire kingship themselves. That desire was not wrong per se. What was wrong, however, was wanting a king that was a carbon copy of the other nations. To make sure that Israel selected the right sort of king, Moses spelled out some criteria. Most of all, the king had to be an Israelite. This requirement is more than xenophobia or ethnic purity. Being an Israelite meant someone who knew and experienced the Israelite story, was familiar with Israelite tradition, observed Israel's mores, ethical requirements, modes of worship, and the like. After this criterion was in place, Moses added other specific requirements. 1. The king must not multiply horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt to procure horses. 2. This king must not multiply wives for himself. 3. The king cannot multiply for himself silver and gold. These requirements at first blush seem completely arbitrary. Why should God care about how many horses a king has? Or, since more than one wife is permitted, why limit the number? And finally, why would God want to restrict a king's wealth? But these are not the questions we should be asking. The question is, what do horses, wives, or wealth symbolize? Upon reflection, the criteria Moses is putting forward make perfect sense. Multiplying horses symbolizes military power. 
Israel could indeed have an army, but Israel was never to be defined primarily by conventional military power. Egypt was a superpower in the ancient world. It once had sufficient power to enslave Israel. Israel was never to emulate Egypt on that score. Indeed, it was supposed to be the opposite of Egypt. How about the kings not multiplying wives? Should not kings have large harems as one of the perks? Well, in the ancient world, diplomatic relationships were often cemented by arrangements which would swell a king's harem. The idea was that if a king married a woman who was a princess, meaning the daughter of another nation's king, and vice versa, it would be difficult to go to war against each other. Again, it was appropriate for Israel to have diplomatic relationships with other countries, but they also had religious, moral, or ethical commitments that could be compromised by diplomatic relationships. Other countries had agendas with which Israel could not agree. Most important, most nations worshipped gods that Israel was supposed to reject. This stricture alerts any future Israelite king that diplomatic relationships had to be entered into cautiously and prudently. The king also had to be careful about not multiplying wealth. A king was supported by the wealth of the people in the form of taxes. That wealth allowed the king to foster national priorities that would benefit the people. Roads had to be built. Armies to defend the people had to be fed and housed. Markets needed to be protected. Courts that would administer justice had to be supported, and so forth. If a king were to multiply silver and gold, primarily for his own aggrandizement, that would not be good for the people as a community. An Israelite king need not be poor, but becoming wealthy at the expense of the people was in essence anti-Israelite. These are the negative traits that an Israelite king should avoid. What about the positive element? No problem. Moses speaks to this as well. When the king takes his throne, Moses says, he should write down a copy of the Torah. Originally, that referred to only Deuteronomy, but in the form of the Bible, it refers to the first five books. Remember from a previous podcast that the Torah is a story, a liturgy, and a way of life. It has everything that one needs to be an Israelite. Once this is written down, the king is to read what he has copied and consequently be formed by what the Torah says. This means that the Torah story will be the king's story. The liturgy will signal how, where, and whom the king is to worship. And the way of life will speak to every aspect of being a good Israelite and therefore a good Israelite king. In short, the main job of the king is to model for other Israelites what it means to fear God, a Hebrew way of saying being religious and moral in every phase and feature of life. Can you imagine an Israelite king going to a convention where the Society of Ancient Near Eastern Kings was holding its annual meeting? 
After the seminars and breakout sessions throughout the day, the kings all go out for a night on the town. When they have had enough to eat and drink, of course they compare notes. One king brags about how he has greatly increased his holdings in horses. That is, he is boasting about how much stronger he has made his military. Another king touts how many women he has added to his harem. This is a way of congratulating himself for his knack at diplomacy. Yet a third king cannot help but mention his stock portfolio. His wealth has increased exponentially in the last year. What is the Israelite king going to contribute to this mutual admiration exercise? Well, he might offer, I did not increase the number of my horses, did not add many wives, and financially I am comfortable enough. But, he adds with gusto, I did write down the whole Torah and modeled it for my people. Can you imagine the looks, the guffaws of the other kings? Who would even want to be a king without strengthening military power on a regular basis, make sure that foreign alliances are in place, and rake in as much money as possible? According to Moses, that is precisely the difference between an Israelite king and the kings of the other nations. After looking at these two intertextual passages, we are ready for the main text, namely 1 Samuel 8. This account begins by reminding us that Samuel had gotten old, verse 1. Samuel was a prophet, and during this time, Israel's leaders. He had just appointed his two sons, Joel and Abijah as judges, another way of describing leadership in Israel, verse 2. Unfortunately, these two sons were corrupt. Instead of presiding ethically, they were prone to take bribes and pervert the court systems, verse 3. Of course, this made Israel nervous. If Samuel is old and therefore nearing the end of his life, Israel had every right to be concerned about who would succeed him. Instead of waiting around, Israel decided to be proactive. Israelite elders approached Samuel, reminded him of his advanced age, and were not bashful about criticizing his sons. Before Samuel had a chance to respond, the elders got to the point. They wanted Samuel to appoint a king as Israel's leader. As we saw in the two previous intertexts, there was nothing untoward in this request, except for one thing. They asked explicitly for a king that Israel was never to have, namely, a king like all the other nations. As though Moses had never outlined the criteria for an Israelite king, the elders acted as though Moses had been silent on this crucial matter. Of course, this upset Samuel, verse 4. Israel's request did not sit well with God either. Samuel prayed when he was urged to make this appointment, at which point God immediately answered. 
God told Samuel not to take the matter personally. As a matter of fact, God let Samuel know that it was not him that Israel was rejecting, but their own deity. God left no doubt whatsoever. Quote, they have rejected me from being king over them. End of quote. Verse 7. God does not stop there. God laments that Israel had been acting badly for a very long time, indeed, ever since they had been rescued from Egyptian bondage. Verse 8. Given God's reaction, we would not have been surprised had God told Samuel to deny Israel's demand. But God does not do that. God tells Samuel to go ahead and meet Israel's demand. Before doing that, however, God wants Samuel to inform the people what it will be like to have a king like all the other nations, which is the sort of king they wanted. Verse 9. So Samuel did just that. The picture Samuel painted was not pretty. In fact, it was dreadful. Here is the scenario that Samuel put forth. The king will take your sons and make them serve in armed forces as grunt soldiers or as officers. Verses 10 and 11. Others will be conscripted to farm royal grounds. Verse 12. Yet others will be enlisted to manufacture weapons and war chariots. But the king will not stop with Israel's sons. He will also take Israel's daughters and have them work as perfumers, cooks, and bakers. In short, Sons and daughters will be at the king's disposal. But this taking of sons and daughters only scratches the surface. The king will also take. Take should by now be understood as a fairly ominous word. The king will also take as well the best of Israelite fields, vineyards, and olive orchards. This has nothing to do with a tax system devised for the benefit of the people, which is why Samuel makes clear that the king will give these fields, orchards, and fields to his servants, that is, to the royal bureaucracy. Verses 14. As bad as this sounds, Samuel is not done. He points to additional oppressive measures that the people can expect. The king will assess a one-tenth tax on grain and vineyards. Again, this has zero to do with the public good. These monies the kings will give to his officers and servants. Verse 15. Doubtlessly, according to Samuel, as the people become impoverished, the king and his supporters will become enriched. Before Samuel has completed this depressing list, he adds two other things involving the word take. The king will take Israelite men servants, maidservants, the best of cattle and asses, and put them to his work. All of this is for the king's benefit. Israelites will be givers. The king will be the taker-in-chief. In the last use of take, Samuel mentions a final tax on flocks. The king will, you guessed it, take a tenth of Israelite flocks. Only this time, in conclusion, Samuel leaves no question 
about the fatal outcome of these oppressive royal actions. You shall be his slaves. Verse 17. Now, telling any population on the verge of erecting a monarchy that it is in the process of enslaving itself would be bad enough. But in Israel's case, Samuel's delivery of such terrible news is terribly ironical. Arguably, the most important part of Israel's story is the Exodus, that is, a story which celebrates God's rescuing Israel from Egyptian slavery. What sense does it make for Israel to escape Egyptian slavery only to opt for an Israelite version of slavery? Slavery is slavery. It makes not a whit of difference who the enslaver is. Samuel does not mince words. This demanding a king like all the other nations can only lead Israel on a road to perdition. If Israel somehow thinks otherwise, what Samuel says leaves nothing to the imagination. First, Samuel insists that Israel eventually cry out because of the king's policies. Verse 18. Even in English, crying out sounds god-awful. But in Hebrew, the word, one word in Hebrew, has an inglorious history in the Israelite story. The word is za'ak. Israel first cried out under Egyptian bondage. That's in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. When they did that, God heard them and began to put things into motion for their eventual rescue. Verse 24 of chapter 2. The same word is used throughout the book of Judges when Israel failed over and over to keep the covenant they made with God. Because of their disobedience, the Lord punished them by allowing them to be oppressed by foreigners. That oppression led them finally to za'ah, cry out. There's that word again. That's found in Judges chapter 3, verses 19 and 15, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, chapter 10, verses 10 and 14, chapter 12, verse 2. It turns out that Israel has had a long, long experience with crying out in response to being under foreign domination. In Israelite tradition, crying out has an ignominious history. Second, Samuel chillingly wants Israel to be aware of something else, something even worse than crying out because of oppression. When you cry out, and you will, Samuel maintains, the Lord will not answer you. This is stunning. When they cried out under Egyptian bondage, God answered by calling Moses, by devastating Egypt with plagues, by helping the Israelites to cross the sea miraculously. All these divine actions are celebrated subsequently by Israel. Even when Israel persisted in disobeying during the period that the book of Judges narrates, God always listened and responded to Israel when they cried out. But that day was over. According to Samuel the prophet, if you insist on choosing a king like all the other nations, then do not be surprised when God does not answer you when you inevitably 
cry out. Alas, no matter how bleak a picture Samuel painted, the people refused to heed his warning. They doubled down by reissuing their insistence that Samuel appoint a king like all the other nations. When Samuel repeated what they said to God, God told Samuel to go ahead and comply with what amounted to a death wish. The monarchy was on its way. Rather than a prophetic rejoicing about Israel's desiring a king consonant with Moses' admonitions, Israel was subject to a tongue lashing for their obstinate demand for a king indistinguishable from the king surrounding them. Would this mean that monarchy in Israel would be an unmitigated disaster? In a word, yes. Despite a few kings who did the best they could to model the right sort of Israelite king, the kingship was in general not even close to being a positive development. Right after the death of Israel's third king, Solomon, Israel split in two, never to be reunited again. Even worse, the two resulting kingships ended up leading Israel into exile. The Assyrians defeated and exiled the northern kingdom, called Israel, in the 8th century before of the Common Era. The Babylonians defeated and exiled the southern kingdom, called Judah, in the 6th century before the Common Era. Israel obviously complained bitterly about this awful development, but they should not have been surprised. Something like this was eminently predictable when they insisted on having a king like all the other nations. I want to thank you so very much for listening to The Bible You Thought You Knew. I have a question for you. Do you have a question or topic that you'd like me to cover on the podcast? If so... All you need to do is head over to Apple Podcasts and do two simple things. One, leave a rating and review telling me what you think of the podcast. Two, in that review, ask anything you want related to the Bible. That's all you have to do. Then, listen in to hear your question answered on a future episode. Join us next time on The Bible You Thought You Knew when we discuss Jesus' personal Bible. God bless.